Right, well, welcome to Top Lines and Tales Christmas Party. Our guests uh, on this week have all been previously on the podcast. We have Scott Brown. Hi, Andy. Rob Patterson. Hello, Andy. How you doing? And the one and only Ken Fletcher. Bonjour, monsieur. Hopefully we're all having a dram and uh, um, don't worry, I'll edit in some party poppers in a minute to make it sound like a real party. And here we are all in our... Christmas jumpers, and um, I've got these guys on video, and uh, they're tremendous. I have to say, mine's in black and white, uh, by the way, but uh, I bought that one because I thought the license was cheaper. So you'll have to be over 50 years old to understand that joke. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give up the day job with the stand-up business. So the trouble is now with my black and white jumper is that I look like one of those spotted Dutch Texel sheep, only not quite so expensive. I would say, Andy, you're probably more like a spotted dick, but there you go. (laughs) So here I am going to give you some top lines and tales, top Christmas tips. So talking of the Spottish Dutch Texels, anybody fancy one of those those spotted Dutch Texels to buy one for the missus this year? They're uh, her price far too expensive. So why not make your own out of a few cast yows and some old Jacob Tups? They're three for a tenner at Darlington Market on a Tuesday. Follow me for more Christmas money-saving tips. <laughs> and okay, some of them might have scurs, but that's not really a problem. We know people who can uh, get around the issue of scurs. It's not really a problem, although perhaps there goes my application for CEO of the Aberdeen Angus Society going in the bin. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, you know what they said today that, you know, if, if you don't offend people, you're not a proper comedian uh, in, in the olden days. Well, I think, uh, Andy, you've managed to offend just about everybody there, including the Jacob breeders. Who, uh, they don't know whether they want two horns or four. I think that's, um, that's Digby Brown lawyers trying to dial in on the call, I think. <laughs> Hey, uh, anyway, those Dutch aren't the only spotted things because there's other animals out there known as the Speckled Park. And you guys haven't seen the Speckled Park cattle. They are the latest thing, and I want some of those things. And I don't know if you've seen them, but they look like an Irish moiled only on steroids. I would say this time of year, with the, with the Christmas coming on, we've got uh, speckled sheep and speckled cattle and old speckled hen, of course. But uh, go, going back to these the speckled parks, um, they're not officially on steroids, obviously, not like uh, not like their owners and, and, <laughs> or the bearded Russian Olympic girls hockey team. And I, I've read from their website, so you guys want to have a listen to this, that their website officially says that they are a carcass-orientated yet maternal purebred, not a composite. It says particularly not a composite, bred of beef cattle, so they're purebred, not composites. The medium-sized breed originated from three British cattle types, the Teeswater Shorthorn, the Aberdeen Angus, and one other unnamed English breed. So uh, seriously, that's what it says. So that's a purebred, uh, purebred speckle. So that, they, that's what's in them. They claim it's a purebred, but there's all these breeds in it. Well, there's two breeds in it, and one they have no idea what the fucking it is. For, uh, um, but... <laughs> It's beginning to sound like an Aberdeen Angus. What do you think about it? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of getting some of these, but I actually want the traditional strain, the ones that go right back to those original cattle there. That's uh, 
not the recent ones with all this poisonous new new blood that's been infiltrated. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to campaign see if I can get myself and go with the original um, ones going right back to the original breed. Uh, if I get some DNA proof, they go all the way back to the Teeswater Tea Rooms. So, and but but probably we might need uh, an advisor. Uh, if anybody heard of a guy called Peter Hall, perhaps uh, Rob, he's a friend of yours, I think. A great guy. He knows a lot about everything. That man, terrific. I really miss him, actually. Do you think we should get him re reinstated back into the, the, the top lines and tails so we can have some more of his uh, interesting conversations between you and Duncan McLaren and himself? Absolutely. I see absolutely no no harm in that at all. Great entertainment. <laughs> I think when you boil it all down, every breed in the country is a composite somewhere along the line, whether it was, say, 200 years ago or... 10 years ago or whatever, they all had a bit of something in them. Even even the likes of your Highland cattle had a wee touch of shorthorn put through them to give them a bit of milk and all that. So, I, you know, I don't think there's any reason for anybody to get really precious about it. Only way you should get precious about it is when it's done surreptitiously and without the full knowledge of the people that are buying the stock of it. And that's where you're supposed to have your... Um, Breed society looking after the integrity of the breed and the, and the pedigrees that are in it, and the, and the CEO that's in charge of it, of course, or, or not, as some of the cases may be. And the you're quite right what you say, Fletch, because there is you know, there's a lot of breeds out there who allowed some of this uh, imported blood into the breed, and the likes of the, of the shorthorns and and such like. And then there's other ones who pretended it wasn't there, and uh, just not quite sure <laughs> where, the, where the speckle fits into that with its uh, other unnamed English breed. Maybe we can just uh, name it ourselves as, as we go along. Perhaps we should call it the speckled insert name here breed. Um, or we just actually get an Irish moiled and, and put it on steroids. That's another option. Uh, if you can get steroids on prescription these days, it's far cheaper than going to Saskatchewan where these things come from, apparently, if you can spell Saskatchewan don't send him a Christmas card right um anyway top tips from uh, from Andy Fraser there let's uh, let's move on uh are you guys got anything else to say about uh, the cattle industry that's going on at the moment I think uh, uh well uh, you know at the, at the end game I think we're all been led up the garden path a wee bit by some of the uh the shenanigans of some of the supermarkets that are beginning to sell Irish beef again New Zealand lamb it used to be that they, they said it was for uh, commercial reasons, but there can't be any commercial reason for a supermarket to sell New Zealand lamb at the moment because it's as, it's as dear in New Zealand as it is here. So the big loss is in the transport of the thing. And all these uh, supermarkets signed up to the COP26 thing and said they were going to reduce waste and reduce food miles. And then they bring in lamb from New Zealand that's probably costing them more over there than it is here. Doesn't they stack up other than being a spoiler for the UK sheep trade? And they're doing the same with the beef and and by importing Irish beef. So, um, game we've got to think about the end game because there's no pedigree world without an end game in in a commercial sense. So, I think we've been uh, hauled over the coals at the moment by the supermarkets, and we need to fight back a wee bit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, I totally agree with Ken what you're saying about the lamb because lamb at best is a 10-month a year eating experience in the UK. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with New Zealand lamb coming in as, as uh, hideous as it is to think at Easter we've got New Zealand lamb on, on the shelves or in people's houses at, um, celebrating Easter. But, you know, it's there to prop up the eating quality of lamb and keep people eating lamb for the other 10 months of the year. So I don't understand why they've got lamb in supermarkets at this time. And just, just the same way as Ken said, you know, I don't understand from a, from a 
from a climate change or uh, from a carbon footprint point of view, it just it's just that just it's madness. I don't understand that at all. Are people being told that it's there? That's the thing. Are people understanding that it's there? And as you said, when it's not no cheaper, then I don't really see where they'd even be buying it. Well, the, the problem is I was in a, a store at the weekend um, and there's a, a big saltire with a farmer stand in front, front of it telling everybody how good the Scotch beef is and you could not find Scotch beef on the supermarket shelves. There was some British beef, but not Scotch labelled. Mm-hmm. And it was all mixed in with Irish beef. There was no delineation between the two. Um, and I believe the same was happening with the, in the lamb. They were all mixed up. Tesco, Tesco, for instance, did a half-price lamb if you were a club card owner, um, which meant that you were paying 15 quid for a decent leg of lamb. But you, if you picked one randomly off the shelf, the chances are it would be New Zealand. In France, it's certainly. I saw some today. It was twenty quid, twenty quid a leg, and that used to be about eight when we used to buy. Used to come in here at certain times when the New Zealand lamb came in. The boys having the barbecues in the summer, you go in there, buy the frozen lamb, you buy ten legs and stick them in your freezer, and then you had a barbecue in the summer. You could just chuck it on, you know. I sell lamb at ten pound a kilo at the farm gate um, butchered, and uh, for a whole lamb, and uh, they're selling theirs now at thirteen ninety five per kilo for a leg through the supermarket so uh, they have priced themselves out of it be interested to see how uh, how the, the french farmers pick up on that because france generally look after their own that's that's the problem in the uk there's a lack of education to the general public your housewife goes into the supermarket and she'll buy the cheapest piece of beef or the cheapest piece of lamb she can get her hands on because that's what the housewife that's buying her beef out of the supermarket or her lamb out from the supermarket does your, your people are more educated and understand about food miles and carbon footprints and uh, origin and everything like that will go to your your local butcher and that's where they buy their meat. Your your housewife that's going to buy meat out of a supermarket has never been educated about quality of beef, origin, anything like that. Whereas in France, they're educated from primary school about eating, about meat, about everything to do with farming. I mean, the, the Paris show is a great example of it where they've got thousands, literally thousands of children mm-hmm. uh, year on year going through the gates, being educated from field to plate and they see the whole process. There's nothing hidden from them mm-hmm. and they understand where their food's coming from. Kids these days think that their food comes from Tesco's and that's the problem. That's the big problem I've got in the UK. But I get what you're saying and it has changed in France. We do get a lot more processed stuff now. We're getting a lot more of vegetables coming in out of season, coming in from, from Almeria down the road in Spain, obviously, and, and pre-packed plastic stuff, which we never used to see. Uh, and uh, that is changing with, I suppose, France modernising, maybe catching up with, with, with the rest of the world. It's still 30 years behind the UK in, in most instances. But going back to, to the... The British side of it, the British housewife has generally bought with, with the pocket, they, despite what they've been told and what have you. When it gets down to standing in, we're all the same, maybe you get down to standing in front of something, they go, well, that's the cheapest one, I'll have that one. But all of a sudden, if that's the cheapest one and I'll have that one and it's not New Zealand anymore, Fletcher's got a good point, but the, what the hell's it doing there? I, I think we've all got to get over the fact that everybody likes the idea of having a green economy and being good for the environment and all the rest of it, but there is a price to pay. And, and I think, uh, you know, the general public, if they were asked a question, would you like a better environment? Of course, they're going to say yes. And then if you ask them, well, are you going to pay a wee bit extra money to help uh, promote and produce a, a, a good environment for your children? 
I think the vast majority of them say no. Or won't, they won't say no, they'll say yes, but they'll vote with their feet and say no. Mm-hmm. Interested to what you said earlier on, Fletch, about the Irish beef, and, and it is a bone of contention now with us being in Brexit and being at Ireland no longer being our, our European allies, and Irish beef over the years has had its stigma with, um, I'm going to get controversial with its dusting and hormones and various things that, that happened in Ireland that didn't happen in in. in the UK and this, the beef being shipped over and the beef industry being controlled by the Goodman brothers and all those sort of things that went on through the 80s. But of lately, we'd like to think we were all singing off the same page. But now with us no longer being in, in Europe, then um, are they still conforming to the health standards that uh, you think the British purveyor demands? Well, I mean, there's always been a kind of uh, difference between Irish beef and Scotch beef in that you never really know what you were getting in the first place. In some instances, there certainly was that case in the past. Um, I'm quite sure that they've upped their standards a wee bit now, but you kind of get away from the fact that beef produced in Scotland has certain assurances that come with it. Um, there are no get-out clauses along the way to it being produced and coming out the other end of an abattoir. So, of course, we should be we should be marketing the fact that this is beef that comes with certain assurances, um, and we should treat every import with some kind of suspicion that it's not, because if we don't, then we're say, we're not being able to say that we are the best in the world. Goes back a little bit to price, though, doesn't it? If it's coming in at the same price and no cheaper, then it shouldn't probably probably won't be coming in. I mean, the only reason, or maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons the things are coming in cheaper is because they're produced in maybe a more economical way that, that than than we produce the beef ourselves, and that probably applies more to the to the to the southern hemisphere beef coming in than perhaps some from Ireland. There's no real reason why Irish could produce the beef any cheaper than than we have. We can. But yeah, then you have the argument that uh, you know. Because we're producing it to a certain standard, we're adhering to a lot of um, management principles that nobody else is. Mm. You know, there's uh, dead stock rules. There's, uh, you know, getting rid of plastic. We all have to adhere to the rules of this country. But I'm not so sure that these are so uh, rigidly adhered to in other countries that we're importing beef from, which is the whole argument about you have to pay for the green credentials or, or... or what we're doing is worth nothing. We might as well go back to a dog and a stick and producing it the same way they do. You know, with, with medicines and stuff, I mean, in Southern Ireland, all over Europe, the Southern Hemisphere, they're all using products that we can and are banned from using. Now, they're they're legally allowed to use them and they're putting these products into their beef and their lamb and then sending them in here. And we can't use those products to produce our products. So... I, I just don't see how how that should be allowed. I mean, if 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 they can they can do it, why can't we? Or vice versa, if we can't do it, then they shouldn't be able to do it if they want to import into our country. We're in danger of having a gripe about this between ourselves, there, Scott. What's your what's your your input? Is, is there is there something we can do about this? Do we just have to moan about it, or, or where where can we all make a difference okay. to to show that that, that uh, what we're doing is actually the right way, and and, and these guys get to you get pushed back. I think looking from the outside in, Andy, basically, you know, since we've been having this discussion, um, I know the demographics of, of uh, shoppers and, and major retailers is 35% of people who walk in the door don't care about origin, where it's come from, how it's been reared. It's all to do with price. Mm-hmm. 
And the other, the other 65%, which is for me, I think is quite a big percentage, I actually do care about origin, how it's been, how it's been reared, how it's been bred, where, the, where it comes from, which farm it is. Um, and I could, all I can think of is the supermarkets and major retailers have got economists who can obviously forward forecast. They're probably looking at, there's probably going to be a bit of carnage on the back of um, no furlough this time. There's, we're not really seeing that massive p uh, effect of people being offloaded from their jobs onto the un unemployed. And I would reckon we could probably see that figure change from 35% of people going through a supermarket to maybe up to about 40, 45. Mm. And if that's what's going to happen, uh, supermarkets are probably just, just um, you know, take, being a bit more cautious and taking in some cheaper meat at the moment. Mm. It is a bit double standard, though, as, as Ken just sort of said. You know, we're not, we've got to jump through hoops at this end to get anything on the shelves at all. Basically, we're, we're basically shouldering all the responsibility and liability in anything that people eat in Scotland. Um, and taking that responsibility away from the major retailer, but it, it suits one week and it doesn't the next when, when they can buy cheaper meat somewhere else. The problem I have from it, from a Top Lines and Tales podcast that we have here, we have a captive audience who uh, um, we're all singing the same page here, and if anybody else listened to this, mm -hmm. I think we're all just whinging about it, whereas yeah, there is there is or should be at some stage something that could be done to highlight these, whether it's... I don't know where the body comes in, and again, this is probably tail wagging the dog here. But where the where the body comes in, we get enough of us to get together actually to get on the television and say, "Never mind your advert for Tesco's. Here's an advert for for uh, for beef or, or for how it is." And, and the reality of what you're eating is is the, the climate change thing has fallen off the radar a little bit at the moment with COVID coming back in again. But it'll come back, and and every time that comes back in there, there there needs to be enough lobby to counter these people. And the problem is. This, there's not enough power in the media. You've just got you've got to be very careful there, Andy. Though you know that would have to be a very clever campaign because that could backfire in you quite amazingly if if you start pushing pictures of meat getting produced in a unsavoury manner. You know, it just puts people off altogether because the vegans are jumping on anything they can get their hands on. You know, it's it's quite difficult. I think some of it will sort itself out. The regards of the lamb. Um, the Middle East and uh, Asia are take, going to take just about all the lamb from Australia and New Zealand, more or less own most of the Australian major processors and slaughterhouses now, China. So uh, I think that's going to more or less come out of the equation, really. Um, the beef side of things could be different with South America and such like, but um, how you tackle it, I don't know. I really don't. We have a we have a levy body QMS officer there to pre present that and promote that. Yeah, well, you've got you've got AHDB in England and Wales QMS in Scotland. I mean, they are there to to, to promote rather than push back because they they say that if you if you speak to anybody in QMS, they'll, they'll tell you that the, the budget they have to work with is tiny, absolutely tiny, to come to take on bodies like you know when when veganism was really being anti meat about a couple. Of, well, I'm not saying it's not now, but. When they were really being vocal about a year ago, or eighteen months ago, uh, on the anti-meat campaign, <clears throat> the budget that uh, QMS are working with to push back against that is tiny, absolutely tiny. So, you know, with uh, whatever we do on the national press or in social media or on the telly in terms of adverts and trying to get people on board, we're, Robert's like Rab's right. We really have to box cleverly to try and get the maximum bang for our buck because uh, and watch what we're doing because it would be so easy to turn people off eating meat by by promoting or making people aware of the unethical things that are happening abroad. Mm. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I think you're absolutely right there about um, promoting the, the thing. It's actually a pittance that we pay, our farmers pay into the system to 
promote their own product. And they're always thinking it's left up to somebody else. And, and you mentioned QMS there. And you have to feel a wee bit for QMS, uh, even though some of you might think they've got failings or whatever. They're up against a, a rock and a hard place with this argument, especially with the vegan thing. If, if you think about it, a tin of beans has a huge promotion behind it that gives it a cachet, that makes it worth more than twice what the supermarket brand is. And that's the way we should be thinking. We should be thinking, put a bit more money into it, get the professional help that you need to promote this thing, and you will turn it around. Mm. It, will, it will come, but it's going to need money. And you can't do it for two bob, or as Jim Walker said to me, two fags and a balloon. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. It needs a bit of serious money behind it. And you're saying if we if enough money was put behind that, I think I read between the lines that people would pay a premium when they saw the word Scotch beef versus meat from other 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 parts of the world or unethical parts of the world. And I suppose you have to to distinguish between Scotch beef and then British beef and then Irish beef and then other rubbish from, from or, or varying scales in the way. <laughs> or was he? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It needs it. It needs the money. Right. It's it's all about the money. I mean, you can't sell anything these days without giving it a bit of promotion. And and to be fair, you can punch above your weight with a very small budget, but you need to know what you're doing, and you need to know that you have the backing of the people that are with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe where QMS falls down a wee bit. That I know it has its detractors and all the rest of it, but get the right people in place, give it a bit of money. And you'd be amazed at what it could do. And should the Scottish government be putting that money in? Should Nippy be putting that money in, Flesh? Why not? Why not? I mean, agriculture is a huge part of the GDP in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, why not promote it? They keep telling us that they're going to push for thirty billion pounds worth of food exports by twenty thirty, and and then they put every obstacle in the way of doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Why don't they live up to their dream and put a bit of money behind it and make sure that it happens? Okay. Yeah, easy. I don't know. I mean, I think whatever they decide to do, however they decide to promote it, they need to get on with it and get going quickly because in the last two years, we've lost a thousand sutter cows a month in Scotland alone. And I think we're probably a sub 400,000 circular cows in Scotland now. And mm -hmm. I think we're pretty close to the critical mass uh, that we're probably there now. I think if we don't stop the rot, we're going to just see the infrastructure just starting to cave in. And um, when, you've, when you haven't got that, backlog or we haven't got that sort of backup of, of volume to supply a market if, you, if it does take off um, then you, you just get left high and dry and our industry is really badly needed and the beef industry in particular really needs a lift at the moment to try and keep cows on the hills. So Andy what's, what's happening in France? Do they actively promote beef in France or what you know? No, in the area that I'm in, no, because it's all arable and it's it, it's. Hey, we used to grow tobacco in this area, and I think they still smoke it. Some of the some of the old farmers, they don't they don't they don't move very fast anyway. And there's a few blondie cows down around here, and I'm not a big fan of the blondes. Not those type of blondes, the long legged bastards that they are. Um, well, I've always been a fan of a long legged blonde myself, but you know, it's up to you. Sure, but uh, the, the the farmers. We'll look after the farmers here, but it's before with the beef we have down here in, 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 with this, the blonde cattle, they, they don't kill them until they're three years old because they like them to have a calf first. They think the beef tastes better What if the, if heifers had a calf before they, they eat it. So you've got three-year-old beef, and then the blonde aquitains are all as mad as a fucking butcher's axe. So they take them into the 
abattoir. They take him into the abattoir, and these things are jumping up all the walls and 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 um, galloping galloping about the place. So they're all they're all stressed to hell. And so eventually they get that thing, and they've got no fat on them, so they can't hang them. So they hang them for about thirty minutes. If they hang them any longer, that they all go black. So you end up with unhung beef, unhung beef that's been killed. And then, but but the farmers here, the one thing you'll see if you go to the old farm, a little grinder, these little grinders by the door, and they'll take the false teeth out and they'll sharpen those on a Sunday before they go for the Sunday lunch and literally sharpen, <laughs> sharpen the false teeth on, on both sides and then uh, they get down and sit and have the dinner and, and the one thing people say the great thing about a Sunday lunch in, in France is it's dead silent because the old farmer you never normally shut him up he sits there and he chews every mouthful for about 17 minutes on average and uh, <laughs> takes about three and a half hours to, to eat his Sunday lunch because he's having a piece of beef so you, de- you tend to know when the, when the, when the, when the, when the blonde aquadine beef is, is on the table. <laughs> Although, that's a party political broadcast on behalf of the Blonde Aquitaine Cattle Society. I'm not, stand, I'm not volunteering for CEO, if you don't mind. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's I have to point out, though, I mean, in, in the past, and I know it was a long time ago, I can remember Blonde Aquitaine's winning the Royal Ulster Show just about every second or third year or so. And one of them was uh, an animal bred in Scotland by the late uh, Jock McGregor. Uh, Gregor's Janet, she was called. I think she won the Royal Ulster twice, and I think she might have won the Interbreed as well. Mm-hmm. And a guy called they were Adrian, he won with, uh, I think it was a kind of imported cow, but he, he won the Interbreed two, two years in the trot. And there was nothing better than a good blonde Aquitaine. The problem was there wasn't that many of them. Mm-hmm. Too many of them where I am, but if I just reflect, is that I would, and strangely enough, it ties Rob into this as well, because it's the guy that flushes your cattle, put me a beast in my direction. Sandbrook Bunyip, bred by Joe Whelan in Southern Ireland. And uh, she was brought over to the UK. So I ran her to the show circuit and she won a couple of shows. Ended up at the three counties and Jock McGregor was judging. And uh, and she'd got ahead, I would say, well, I've got a six foot door in front of me and i mean the rest of her goes through the door but her head probably wouldn't it was that long so it, she had <laughs> she had this head about four foot long why the long face joke came in and and um and jock mcgregor and he took a look at her and he's coming out the door and he's going to just get that thing away from him. and he refused he put a last i think in the class and and and, the, and i think old joe whelan uh, was there as well and they're just having a row about this thing and he said she's the ugliest headed bastard ever so um there was a little bit of animosity, but yes, you're right. Jock was uh, Jock was some man in that job, and of course, Jock being one of the very first men bringing Texels into the UK too. Yeah, I remember speaking to Jock about the blondes actually years ago, and uh, Jock was of the opinion if the same guys that got into the limmies uh, got into blondes when they first came in, the blondes could have been the most dominant uh, of the two. And, and where I sit, the, the blondes are from here south, and from, the limmies are from here north. I'm kind of on the cusp of them, and uh, I would say limmies are always going to win that argument. But then it depends what you want out of a beast. So the, the, when it goes south from here, the, it's, the weather gets hotter and warmer, and the blondes will live more in that in that warmer climate, maybe, which probably isn't Scotland. So, uh, But you look at, at, at the quicks, you look at old Bill Quick, the quickest man ever to uh, sell you something. They, those guys went into blondes and limousines, and, and they did well in both breeds, but uh, limous is where they ended up, so maybe that's not quite the truth. Right, so continuing in our top lines and tales, top Christmas tips, here's another money saver. Instead of giving all your money to Raymond Irvin, you could make your very own Valley Black Nose Sheep. 
All you need to do is to get an old goat and an Afghan coat. And there's plenty of those for sale secondhand on the Taliban <laughs> website. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> carry on. We do for Christmas, Fletch. You cooking? I'm cooking. I'm eating a turkey. Uh-huh. But I'm not going to pay 140 quid for a Norfolk Black. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I've got a 16.99 special out of Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you why. Because I can't tell the difference. Maybe I've got COVID and I can't taste or smell anything, but when I eat a turkey, it always tastes the effing same. <laughs> Why would you spend £140 on something you can get for £16.99 out of Aldi? And you know that it comes from Scotland. You sure it doesn't come from Turkey there, Fletch? you sure you read the label? you got your glasses on? I, I think if it came from Turkey, it was flying like hell. <laughs> and it's frozen, and I will... I, I will properly defrost it. I will properly cook it. And the most important thing to do with turkey at Christmas Day is to leave it to rest. Uh-huh. So, therefore, when you're leaving it to rest, it gives you time to have a drink. Sure. <laughs> which I shall manage with some plug. So, you're cooking yours on Tuesday, so it's resting till Friday and had plenty of drink. <laughs> <laughs> started, started cooking it in January. <laughs> I think, I think um, Aldi's are missing out on a strap line there. They could be saying, uh, had COVID, lost your sense of smell, lost your sense of taste. Buy our one of our fifteen ninety nine turkeys. You won't know the tip smell or the taste. It won't matter. Taste the fuck all, and it came from Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Just call it the COVID turkey. <laughs> the COVID turkey. <laughs> I feel a loss <laughs> coming on. Uh, I've got two vegetarians for Christmas, and uh, we're having um, we're having a leg of salmon. It's stuffed with various things and apparently in a Wellington. So could all be different. Could it be interesting? I've never eaten vegetarian before. I don't know what they taste like. How do you cook them, these vegetarians? Well, I, I was going to wonder, <laughs> I wonder what they tasted like. Is it on a spit? I think they're a bit like blondes, Fletch. Uh, you can't leave them on the spit too long, they dry out. <laughs> so, Rob, you'll be doing Santa this year. I see you've got the beard going on already there. It's not grey enough yet, but uh, you'll, be, you'll be definitely coming down the chimney there and getting your mince pies and all the shit, especially in the new house. Have you got the chimney wide enough for you, Rob? you got a big one in there. Get extension in it. <laughs> I'll get that. No bother, Andy. No bother at all. Just get myself greased up and then down you go. It's not a problem. The beard's coming off. I'm, I'm under orders to sharpen up for Christmas. So it'll be a, a visit down to the local Turks. See, that, that, did you like the, the way he did that? Like, this is like a DJ link, like he's talking about the well, turkey and then we get know, the Turkish barber. It's all be fitting in nicely. The Turkish barber is quite a lad. Um, uh, he'd opened this new um, shop in Dunblane and he's in Pollock in Glasgow, sure, which is one of the more affluent areas, isn't it, Fletch? Effluent. <laughs> Having his, having his family stay here. It turns, it turns out he's got uh, he's got five barber shops, one in Glasgow, one in Dunblane, one in Newcastle, one in Birmingham, and one in Manchester. That's a poor man's London, Paris, New York. <laughs> Absolutely. But he does a he does a crack and shave, and he's very interested in farming, actually. If he's any good with his shears, you can fetch him round to dress that top for me for the Highland Show, then. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> There's more time to cut his throat and fuck off down the road. <laughs> you better leave that. Kebab yeah. while you wait. Suppose it's a multi-purpose thing because they can barber all day and then kebab all night. It's like a twenty-four hour <laughs> business, really. True, mm-hmm. enough. <laughs> True enough. The last time I was in a, I was in a, 
Turkish barber only once, and I was sitting there waiting for some Egypt who was getting his beard trimmed, and it looked as if it was very methodical, and they had the whole thing over the top of his head and everything. And who would popped out from under it but Ali Jackson? He goes in there all the time, and then he went across the road and had 14 rolls of bacon out of the <laughs> baker's shop. You'd have thought Ali would have trimmed his own beard, a man like that. You thought he could manage a bit of a bit of a job in the mirror there, couldn't you? He maybe got one of those vouchers for 30% off a back sack and crack. <laughs> Oh, we, all, we all know it's Hannah Sloan that's the stocksman there anyway. So. Yeah, don't worry, this is all going out live. You're fine, you're fine. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> One of the most influential people in my time in reading Suffolk Sheep was a guy called Jamesy Dunn, JP Dunn from Coombsley. He was like the Ricky Fulton of the Suffolk world. He was extremely amusing. And um, I remember him the year that... Uh, a certain Suffolk Ram that was champion the last one of the last Edinburgh Suffolk sales. He was one of the most phenomenally appealing Rams from the front. He had a fantastic head look, but from back he just needed one back leg because his back legs were that close together. And I remember standing in the pen of Lambs and I looked up and here's Jamesy Jamesy Dunn standing into the pen and he goes, "Well, what are you thinking?" And I said, "Well, you'll not do me." He goes, "Me neither." He says, "He's just a disaster." But he says, "I'll tell you something better than that." He says, "Somebody's going to actually have to stay here the night with that beast." He says, "With a fire extinguisher." I said, why is that? He says, well, if that bugger's back legs start rubbing together, he says, this place will catch fire. <laughs> the Royal Show, bloody hell. I remember uh, it would be 1998, I think. It was the European Championship was getting played at the time. And myself and Stuart Bett had had a skinful after the showing, and we decided that we are going to have all the flags off the... Uh, veranda of the Charlie Cattle Society building because there's quite a lot of the European teams that were playing that evening the flags were up there so there was games going on uh, anyway we went up and we got the it was either Denmark or it was Norway anyway we went and nicked that flag England were playing that night and it was getting shown in the Texel Society tent so in we went the two brave of us in there about when the, the game was on um, and we ran to the Texel Society tent who had a big screen up and who was the first person we met in there but uh, David Benson, the Charlie Cattle chief executive who more <laughs> less grabbed, grabbed us by the collars and says, lads you're climbing back up that veranda tonight and putting that bugger back where you got it. And I, eh, to be fair to him, he let us stay and watch the football and then marched us back and made us climb up and put it back. But, <laughs> eh, okay, we used to get up to some hijinks at the Royal and the Highland and things like that. Hopefully there's more to come. But As you know, the Royal Show used to be the event of the year. It managed to eclipse the, the Highland Show uh -huh. by a considerable margin, in my opinion. It was where farmers went to do business. They sold a lot of pups to people in the south with lots of money. It was great. It was fantastic for Scottish breeders. <laughs> One of the guys to take advantage of that was Gavin Shanks. <laughs> when Big Gavin first started importing Beltex from uh, Holland, he always used to make sure that they brought in about 20 gallons of Dutch port in gallon bottles. This is a thing to behold. These these things were a thing of beauty. 
but they had to be drunk quickly before they went off. Anyway, he used to host a wee party at the back of the uh, the Royal Show, and I think the modus operandi was get as much down your neck as you possibly could. I think probably most of you have been there. Absolutely. Um, so Big Gavin in, in those days took quite a bit of a sup himself, and so he grabbed me by the shirt, the, the top of my shirt, and he said, that's a nice shirt, I'll have that, and went, woof! I took the whole thing off. Between the, the strength of a guy who was 24 stone and the weight of a guy who was 20 stone, the shirt and I parted company quite healthily. <laughs> and so poor Alice, she took, she gave me a bit of sympathy and said, uh, she gave me one of Gavin's shirts, you know, which looked like I was in a big top. <laughs> so the Looks next like you're is, <laughs> The next day at the show, a person I'd never met before came up and gave me a bit of my shirt and said, Big Gavin asked me to give you a bit of this shirt. There you go. And this happened for the next three days. <laughs> so a year later, I was invited to go to Champagny, uh, the well-known restaurant in Linlithgow, where Gavin's best man ran the ship. It was all to do with the fact that Gavin sold them. This, this is Gavin for you. He sold them a pair of cockatoos <laughs> and then extracted a heap of money off them every year when the guy went to South Africa on holiday to look after the damn things. <laughs> so the price, the price of this was a table for 10 in Champagne, mm -hmm. all for looking after these two cockatoos. They were pink cockatoos. They were just, just not ordinary cockatoos. <laughs> These were champion cockatoos. So we went in there a year after the, uh, fully a year, maybe 18 months actually after this event. And uh, we all had a start or whatever. And uh, the waiter came around to me and says, you're having a special course, you know, intermediate before the main course. I said, oh, fantastic. He says, but you'll need a bib for this. So I got kind of thing that looked like a baby's bib on and a big towel around it and all that. And they brought out the big silver platter about this size, huge. And it lay down in front of me and Gavin pulled the top off it and there was the collar to my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and that, was, that was the kind of big twat he was. He kept, uh, he kept these things going forever and ever and ever. And even, you know, even later in, in the day, he would produce a little bit of my shirt and hand it to me. He must have spent hours cutting this thing up into one inch squares. And if you know the size of me, you'll know how many one-inch squares there was. <laughs> An amazing man. Maybe one day we should just pull all those stories together and just uh, just have a bit of a bit of crack about the big man because uh, he he was something else. And... Oh, it was just Big Shanks's party. If I remember correctly, it was the same party because I was a bit late there that night. And when I got there, Fletch was uh, Fletch was running about naked. But what really caught my eye that night was uh, Fletch's right-hand man, McSkimmon on the top of the Ivor Williams um, with shirt off, swinging it above his head. This was after a good half gallon of Gavin's famous port. Um, how he got up there, I don't know. We all know how he got off, because he fell flipping right off it and just about broke his neck. But um, that was the night of the ostrich, I believe, Ken. Uh, made, made with the ostrich barbecue that evening. They bought the ostrich at Smithfield. 
it was the first ever ostrich slaughtered in the UK. That's and sick. they had it on display in the upper floor near the near the sheep section at Smithfield. And Gavin and John McElraith bought it. <laughs> and then they put they put the thing in a black plastic bag and went through the security at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <laughs> and the woman said, Gavin, what's that you've got in that plastic bag? He said, an ostrich. And she said, don't be a bloody <laughs> And he opened it up, and there was the big kind of Fred Flintstone style, looking him right in the eye. And she went, oh, no. But he was allowed to take it on, you know. And <laughs> so that was up in the... They, they got into the plane, stored it up in the, the luggage rack, and away they went. And then he took it home and froze it. And we all had bits of that for years after it. I'm quite sure. Bloody ostrich. <laughs> some, some man, and of course, those that, that don't know of Big Gavin Shanks, we should he, there should be a podcast written about him. Tossed the cable for Scotland, reckoned to one of the men responsible for bringing the first Beltex into the country. One of my father's sparring partners with Blue Domain Sheep, and uh, I've got a, a story about him in the rank village and in the Royal Show. And me staying in the bed the one night, and I got nothing to, to sleep on, so uh. The only pillow we'd got was a was a loaf of bread, so I ended up uh, for bread, and then I went out to go and have uh, have a pee in the middle of the night, and the old bastard locking me out, and I was running about there that uh, with with nothing at all on there, and I was running up and down that corridor, and a little bit worse for wear for a while, and uh, eventually Shanksy took pity on me, but uh, I think they were photographed somewhere, which I hope will never come to life. <laughs> what a man! You wouldn't be the first person running about naked at the Rag Village, Andy, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think it was well named. We were doing it Smithfield always just to go away into London, didn't it? Piccadilly Circus and round about and you'd always end up in Soho. It was always uh, the same kind of group. There was a there was a great establishment in Soho. We, we really did like it. It was called Raymond's and Uba. Oh shit, no Raymond's uh, and Uba. No, I've never been there. Never. <laughs> There was one. There was one night we were really late to get to Raymond's review bar. Or, uh, like it was after the start of the show, and we got there. And Raymond quite often would be at the door. And, <laughs> right, right, boys, in you come. You'll need to be quiet. I'll get somebody to take you down. So that's me, guy with a torch, because the only seats were right in the front row, right at the bloody stage. <laughs> like I'm going, I'm going. We're going to get fucking eaten here the night if we stand here. <laughs> anyway, we're sitting there, and always at a half-time break for refreshments. So the show was absolutely superb. I mean, it was an eye opener. The lights went up at half time, and we, we the bar was halfway up the stairs. You turned right, you went along, and the bar was there. So we were like, right, we're running out a drink. We'll need to be up there quick. So as soon as the lights went up, we stood up and spun round, and the place was just fucking rammed with farmers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you could see guys diving for cover, like trying to hide under their jackets. And fucking... It was hilarious. It was just the next day, I'm walking around Smithfield, and it was just the knowing nod, you know. The first time I went down to Smithfield was 1977, and Big Poof said, right, we need to go up to Soho, we're going to Raymond's Review Bar. So we paid a fucking 20 quid. It was quite a lot of money at that time. 20 quid back then? Holy aye, shit. Aye, oh my. But you couldn't see what was happening in, uh, up on the stage for bonnets and crooks. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe it? You maybe have mention of the guy called Andrew Morrow. When you ask him what the epitome of a good Highland cow was, he says, 
a muthlet, a shovel, and a tonglet, a scythe. <laughs> that was his. Eh? And after that, he didn't need to worry too much. But he once turned up at a Smithfield show, and he had a cut above his eye, and his nose was all black and blue, and he had a kind of big scar down his chin. So I said, what happened to you, Andrew? He says, oh, I, he said, I got off the train, and I, I took a misstep, and I fell onto the platform. I said, all oh, right, well, so where did the stitches come from? Oh, they took me to hospital. They said, but they had, to wait, they had to wait 12 hours before they put a stitch in me. Because when they asked me how much I'd had to drink, he said, no very much, just one, maybe two. And they said, what, whiskeys? He said, aye, bottles. (laughs) (laughs) Hands up if you think the sheep trade has gone completely fucking bonkers. Fletch, you're right, though. It's become very elitist uh, at the top end of the terminal sire job. Absolutely. You know, come on. Get a grip. Crazy. I, and again, it's driven by money that is the... It's not farming money. It's no. a, it, it, in, one, in one hand, it's pallets. Mm. And in the other hand, it's windmills. Yeah. It's just... Yep. But do you know what? It was ever thus. Probably the same. Oh, you know, money comes money. in and money goes out. Nothing's changing, that's for sure. Well, maybe but it's going around the same folk, though, and that hasn't changed for years either. That's been the same no, all the way. It's still the same folk. It's there's, no, there's not very many new people in now. You know, it used to be yeah. you get the odd industrial guy coming in. Like... Right, because we're at a Christmas party, we need some party games. The Best Breed Society CEO. Top ten. Jonathan Barber. But no, because he's been around that. I mean, he's like, i tell you what, CEOs are like football managers. They're only there because they're because they produce the goods for long enough before the society or the membership overwhelm them with it in the end. They've got a set window of opportunity where they can actually produce the goods, and after that they've got to go. Scott, that's a good answer, but it's the wrong answer. But okay, number one, Jonathan Barber. We'll take that next. Number two, anybody else? David Benson. Well, I, th- I think David Benson's uh, pedigree started when he was a stockman. And he knew everybody in the breed. But that's not enough. You need to be clever enough to know how to... To future-proof um, the breed. How to manoeuvre things that you want, that you need to manoeuvre. And that's a, that's a very important thing. Sure. Um, far too many societies have had chief executives who knew nothing about the breed they were involved in. Um, and so maybe there's a lesson there to be learned in the current straits that some of them find. Good. From from my point of view, one of the best guys ever was uh, late Ben Coots. Because mm-hmm. Ben Coots had a depth of knowledge that would choke an elephant, but he knew <laughs> how to manipulate people as well. Um, he was involved in the Highland cattle breed for a long time. And I have been at a Highland cattle AGM, which is can be one of the most inflammatory things in the world. And Ben Coots shot them down like a sniper every time they got up and said something. It was fantastic. And that's what we need. We need people who know about what they're involved with. You don't actually need a proper businessman who knows nothing about the breed. What you need is first is somebody who knows about the breed and who's a businessman as well. That's my opinion. Okay, good. I'm going to say 
Number four, I was highly impressed with uh, um, Ron McHattie. I had a lot of dealings with Ron. Um, was not within the farming industry, not within the the pedigree beating industry, but he was a, a businessman and a people man, and he made sure that the people he had around his close table, close committee, uh, were themselves businessmen that knew not only how to breed animals, but uh, knew how to run a business and make sure that the figures stacked up. Okay, that's four, right. Number five. Stephen McLean. CEO of the Texel Sheep Society. Steve was knew the job as Ken has just mentioned um, previously from the from the grassroots level up, and because of that, he was very influential in driving the breed forward. It's very difficult when you're a, when you're a breed CEO to please everybody because you can't. You're almost like a football referee. You're not a CEO, but he could actually take the majority of people with him, which is I think is actually the most achievable outcome. Steve was pretty good. I think he also checked out when you knew the time was right. Number six for me would be Frank Milnes. Frank Milnes kind of oversaw the progression of the Beef Shorthorn Society from being an endangered species to being a sought-after breed. That was a spectacular rise. And I don't, I don't think it was as much to do with Frank being a, a clever um Stockman or anything like that, but I think he guided them through a few paths that they needed to go and they didn't know they wanted to go it. Actually, you don't need a good breed secretary, you just need good good cattle to start with, and then you don't need a fucking breed secretary. That's the end of it. But, you know? <laughs> if it's only that easy, Fletch. Good one. I, I agree with that. Well, number seven, well, CEOs, it's pretty difficult because, I mean, every breed hasn't got a CEO, but it's probably Aileen McFadden with the Blackies. Um, she's done a tremendous job over the last God knows how long of putting up with all the breeders, like, honest to God, she deserves a medal for the shit she puts up with for them. That's all I'm going to say about it. Amen to that. Absolutely. The only, the only thing I can add to that is she's also put up with George. I mean, she should be a dame by now, to be honest with you. <laughs> Did, did George not pave the way for her putting up with shit for the Blackies, or was the other way around? <laughs> Who knows? Or could they pave his own back step? <laughs> <laughs> Number eight now. David going to the Cimentar Society. What a what a great man he was. Flats. We enjoyed his uh, enjoyed his company. He did a great job with the breed. Number nine, Helen Ashton. Helen had a tremendous long run, of course, with the Beltex Society uh, when they, of course, were in their infancy. And now we finally get there to number 10. Brief I can side. tell you one of the best ones that I've slept with is called Fiona Sloan. Well, that'll be <laughs> And me too, to be fair. <laughs> high five, Andy. High five. <laughs> hey, and see if the other two see if the other two say the same thing. I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> right, that has to be a wrap. It's getting late. Okay. Happy Christmas, fellas. Thank you, yeah, I, I, I won't, and I promise I won't incriminate you all.
But some of you might be in this shit. Some of you might be. But hey, happy Christmas. Now, get the f*** out of here. I'm turning the lights off. Finally, I'd just like to wish a Merry Christmas to all of our listeners to Top Lines and Tales. And thank you so much for bringing us up to 40,000 downloads within a year. You've been brilliant.